This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is best-selling author Bruce Feiler. Bruce's latest book is called The Search, Finding Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. Today, Bruce shares insights from hundreds of life stories he collected about how people navigate through work transitions, which he calls work quakes. We talk about why we've been inculcated with the premise that there is a linear path to success, and he shares why it's time to rethink what it means to have a career. Ultimately, Bruce's work is about helping people define what success means to them on their own terms and equipping people with the tools to identify and live out their purpose. So let's get to my chat with Bruce Feiler. It's just so nice to have you here. Your body of work is so extraordinarily wonderful. And I guess just to sort of frame the conversation, well, you've spent years writing about these moments of uncertainty in life and how to turn them into opportunities and and moments of growth, which I also want to talk to you about how that applies to children and teenagers as well in terms of, you know, how to create resilience, et cetera. By the way, that's a big interest of mine. My twin daughters are about to go to college and I've been thinking a lot about children and, and transition. So we'll, we'll, we'll put a pin in that and come back to it. Okay, good. So these themes around uncertainty and, and growth, which I think they're deep and important topics and they lead to so much, but can you just tell us a little bit about your particular journey that led you yeah. to this work? I grew up in 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 Savannah, Georgia, and I left there and I went to the Northeast to go to college. I left there and I went to Japan in the mid 80s. And I'm old enough that I started writing home letters on crinkly airmail paper right back in. <laughs> the, the kids today don't know what that is. You'll Google it. And 
And when I got back to Georgia six months later, everyone said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great. Have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around and they went viral in a sort of 1980s sense of the word. <laughs> and I thought, I should write a book about this. I didn't know anyone had ever written a book, like, but it doesn't happen this way. But I sold my first book at 24, now 35 years ago. And I set off on this journey of kind of entering worlds and 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 writing about them. So I wrote books about Japan and England. I spent a year as a clown in a traveling circus. I spent my 30s back and forth to the Middle East writing a series of books about you know religion and spirituality, walking the Bible and Abraham. And I think of this now, Gwyneth, in the, in the context of the conversation we're about to have as a linear life. Like it's the fantasy that we all have. Like I figured out what I wanted to do early. I did it for no money. I had some success. I got married and had children. But then in my 40s, my life just was completely blown up. First, I got cancer, as you know, as the father of identical twin daughters, asked a group of men to be a council of dads for my girls. I had some financial trouble because my family owned a bunch of real estate in Georgia that got wiped out by the recession. And then my dad, who has Parkinson's, got very depressed and tried to take his own life six times in 12 weeks. So here I am, like I'm a professional storyteller, like, and I had no idea how to tell the story. And I didn't want to, right? I felt shame. I felt, I, I felt embarrassment and confusion. And when I started telling it, what I found out is that everybody goes through these periods when they feel kind of pain or confused or, 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 or just out of sorts. And what I kept hearing from people, I actually went to a college reunion and I was moderating a panel. There were 250 people in the room. These were very impressive people. I had their resumes. And on my way up, a friend of mine was closing a huge a business deal and was talking on the phone. He was on top of the world and he would talk to his partners and he was crying because the nine month old of one of his partners went down for a, had a, had a, had a, went down for a nap and, and never woke up. Oh my God. So I'm sitting in this room with all these fancy people at Yale and I ripped up the resumes and I was like, you know what? Losers don't come to their college reunion. I don't wanna hear about your successes. I wanna hear about your struggles and what keeps you awake at night. And that night, person after person came up and told me a story like my wife had a headache and went in and died. I'm being sued for malpractice. My boss is a crook. My child's trying to, to cut herself. And right. I called my wife and I was like, no one knows how to tell their story anymore. And I want to do something to help. So what I did was create this thing that I now call the Life Story Project. And I went out and just started find, finding people and saying, tell me your story. This is what you do every week. Like, just tell me your story. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't really know what I was hoping to find. And in the field that I sort of stumbled into of narrative psychology, like a, you know, a meaningful academic paper will have six, eight, 10 of these stories. In the last six years, I've done 400, 1500 hours of interviews, 10,000 pages of transcripts. And sort of, so with the first book, that this led to, the big idea was that the linear life is dead, right? The idea that we're all going to do the same thing in our 20s and our 30s, and then have a quote unquote midlife crisis between 39 and 44 and a half. That's what the original idea was. Like that turns out to be bunk. It's just not how we live. And what we live is we live nonlinear lives that involve many more transitions. You know, my data from that book show that we go through three dozen what I call disruptors in the course of our lives. That's one every 12 to 18 months. Like that's more often than most people see a dentist. And most of these we get through, but but one in 10 of them becomes a life quake, right? A massive change. And I think that the 
you know, we'll talk about the new book in a second, but I think the signature piece of data from that book is that the average length of a life quake is five years. So you think three to five in a lifetime, four, five, six years, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives. We are in this kind of state that you asked about. And I think the big thing that I most feel is that we usually talk about it as grit and grind and kind of resilience your way through it. That's a problem. We've sort of, we've normalized the stable periods and we've sort of fetishized the unstable, pathologized, if you will, the, the unstable periods. And that's what my work is about. It's like in these periods, as difficult as they are, we can learn skills to get through them more effectively. And they, and even as painful as they are, they can lead to periods of, of growth mm -hmm. and renewal. And is it because we are inculcated with I this idea that life is linear, that then these transitions feel so painful because we, we're supposed mm. to be going up and to the right? How did this construct start that we're supposed to live this linear life? I actually think that that's what a lot of people miss, which is essentially we have, we have linear expectations, but nonlinear lives. And I think the gap between them is what causes the anxiety. And what we do is we blame ourselves, right? What, what people say is like, I'm off track or I'm off schedule or I'm off kilter. Like the life I'm living is not the life I expected to live. The problem is not you. The problem is the expectation. So where did this come from, right? So if you go back and it turns out that the linear life, it's the aberration, right? So in the ancient world, they thought that life was a cycle because they had agriculture. They didn't have clocks. They didn't have linear time, right? To every season, turn, turn, turn. We all sing when we're, when we're kids. In the Middle Ages, they think life is a staircase up to middle age and then down. Like you peak in middle age. So that's what is that? But that's no new love at 50. That's no retiring and moving to Florida and opening a B&B &B or now an Airbnb. It's like straight up and straight down. And this, this really changes with the birth of science 150 years ago, because then you have the industrial revolution, right? So you have everything going in conveyor belts and assembly lines. And so you've got... Piaget with childhood development and, and Erickson with the eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief. These are all linear constructs. And the problem is that's the aberration. So now we know with chaos and with the internet, like life is coming at us from all directions. So we've changed how we look at the world, but we haven't changed how we look at our lives. And I think that that is the, is the tension. To go back to what I said before, we are haunted by the ghost of linearity, that we still normalize the idea that all changes are coming at birthdays that end in zero, right? And that's because that's what we read on the, you know, in, in the in the magazines and, you know, in the back of a textbook as undergraduates. But think about the pandemic. If you were 30 or 40 or between 39 and 44 and a half, you were having a midlife crisis. But if you were between 57 and 65, you were having one or 23 and 28, or in the case of my children, 15 years old, you're having a crisis. So we have to let go of the of the safe idea that these changes happen on a calendar and accept the fact mm -hmm. that they come at us from all times. And as we turn to work, this is even more relevant. You get to write the story of your own life. Mm -hmm. That's a great opportunity, but a lot of us essentially get writer's block in writing the story of our own lives. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. 
I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And I guess it's reductive too, to assign a certain chapter of your life, you know, to sort of conjugate it with like a midlife crisis or, you know, you're sad because you're in this phase or you're you're an empty nester or, you know, you're in your Saturn return or whatever. It's like, we find comfort in these ideas of like, this happens to everyone, but at the same time, it doesn't fully, you know, give that chapter its full due course. I think that's exactly right. I was a 43-year-old man when I got diagnosed with a life-threatening cancer and I had three-year-old identical twins. And this upend, that's not supposed to happen. You know, my parents were still living, right? My in-laws were, that's not supposed to happen. Like the the, the prior generation, right? I mean, I've done 400 stories. I bet a quarter of them involve addiction, either the person or, or a parent or a partner or a child like that just happens when it happens. The pandemic happens when it happens, the downsizing, the tornado, the natural disaster, whatever it is, it, it, it they're not happening on a schedule. And I think you're right. We take comfort in that because I think it makes us feel safe. But the reality is that's the crutch. And the way to feel safe is to say, I don't have to live someone else's dream anymore. I can live my dream and I can make the change and I can make the decision to write the story of my own life. It's harder, but it ultimately will bring you more fulfillment. If you go back a hundred years, most of the sources of meaning in our lives were handed to us, mm-hmm. right? We had to live where our parents wanted us to live, love who our parents wanted us to love, do what our parents wanted us to do, believe what our parents wanted us to believe. We didn't have this kind of agency. Now, that's not true. You Mm -hmm. can live where you want to live, love who you want to love, believe who you want to believe, do what you want to do. Okay. That is, and by the way, this has especially helped women, but it's harder. And essentially what my work has become is giving you a tools to navigate the transitions. And in the case of this new work to sort of decide what it is that you want to do, what kind of work will bring you meaning and then give people the tools to help achieve that. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to look at it through the lens of work, because as you, as you say, you know, our life sort of defaults to work. We work all the time. Mm -hmm. It defines our life. It's what we spend the most time doing. So it's interesting to look at this through the framework of, of, work and how we relate to ourselves through work and this idea of a career trajectory. I want to start with, I think, to that end, this idea you talk about, about America being kind of at a turning point with work. And of course, we've all read about quiet quitting and the great resignation and, you know, 
like running a company. I can't tell you how many people after the oh, pandemic, you know, came to say, you know, I've just always wanted to do landscape architecture. So I'm going to quit my, <laughs> you know, data science job. And I was like, great, you know, but also like, wow, what is, what is happening here? So what was it about the pandemic that facilitated these ideas of work quakes that you talk about? Maybe, maybe define what a work quake is first, and then we can talk about that. So, well, what I love about this, but on my way to answering that question is that you, I love that you brought up you as a, you know, as the, as a leader, because you both embody this in the, in the sense that you've made non-traditional work choices. Even the idea of starting this company was a bold move at the time that you did it because you were known for being in one space and then suddenly you were transitioning to another space. So you've seen it from both both sides, both as yeah. a practitioner and now, you know, as a leader, both as a you know employee and an employer. And of course, that gets to what we'll get to, which is that we're all all these different things. None of us has a job anymore. We have these multiple different roles. So that book I we've been talking about, Life is in the Transitions, it was actually scheduled to come out in May of 2020, which couldn't happen because we were all in quarantine. Bookstores were closed. You know, media was covered with focusing on the, the, the pandemic. So we ended up bringing out that summer and it and suddenly the entire planet was in a life transition at the same time, right? So suddenly <laughs> I had the, the right book at the right time. You were in the and zeitgeist. So, I mean, it was just, I didn't see it coming, but I did know that, and there hadn't been a major book on transitions in 40 years. So that book comes out and just touches a nerve, leads to a TED talk. Now this TED course I, I teach on, on navigating life transitions. And to be you know entirely honest, a week after it came out, I was having a drink with my editor in Brooklyn. I think about it because we were just socially distant, the whole thing. And it always begins with me, Gwyneth, with a feeling. And I was like, you know what? Work is going to be the next domino to fall. I just feel like the combination of you know, the public health crisis, the social justice movement, we were still in the wake of Me Too at that time, and sort of women beginning to find their voice even more in the workplace, the political upheaval, the technological the, the technological change. Here we are, you know, a few years later, and how many jobs are going to be lost to generative AI, right? But I sort of felt like work is going to be the next domino to fall. And so I set out again, gathered another few hundred stories from pe from all walks of life, all backgrounds. And I would say the first thing we need to do is reckon with the expectations because the expectations are of this linear career path. I mean, I'm sitting here at, at my desk in, in, in Brooklyn and I stacked on this desk the five most popular success books of the 20th century, okay? That's How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Power of Positive Thinking, What Color Is Your Parachute, right? The Seven <laughs> Habits of Highly Effective People. I turned every page, researched every name, and to cut to the bottom line, there were 693 stories that were mentioned. 93% are straight white men. Only 7% were women and 0.009% were minorities. So, you know, Horatio Alger, who gave his name to the American success story, starts writing his best-selling novels about boys in New York City after he was accused and found guilty of sexually abusing boys in Cape Cod, right? So before we even grapple with the, ch the choices of today, we need to recognize how narrow-minded, I would even go so far as to say cruel, 
the American success story has been. And it's focused only on one type of person with one, one type of story and one type of work trajectory. And that turns out to also be an aberration. Okay. So step number one is you don't have a career. Like that's lie. Number one, you don't have a career because that was decided a hundred years ago by this guy, Frank Parsons. I mean, I love the story in the search, it was essentially invented when people leave the farms and go to the cities and, and immigrants come from overseas. Because for most of human history, people lived where they worked and worked where they live. And we didn't need this idea. Line number two is you have a path. And there you get to the workquake. So what is a workquake? A workquake is a moment of instability, right? Where you rethink or like or reconsider or kind of reimagine what you're doing. And I like the term workquake because it's value neutral, because some of them you don't control, they're involuntary. Okay, you get laid off, or there's a recession, right? Or, you know, your spouse gets sick, and you have to spend more time, or your partner moves, and you need to move, or you have a child who, who, who you know, who needs greater attention for you. So, but some of them are voluntary. You mm -hmm. know, we've been talking, I'm the dad of identical twin daughters, when they were born 18 years ago, it was a work quake. I mean, it was joyful, but like <laughs> everything got upended. And, you know, I told you, before that I think that the signature piece of data from life is in the transitions is that the average life quake takes five years. I think that the signature piece of data from the search has to do with work quakes. And let me first say that the average person goes through a work quake every two and a half years. But here's the thing. It's women go through them more frequently than men. Xers go through them more frequently than boomers, millennials more than Xers and diverse workers more than non-diverse workers. Okay, so the average millennial woman will go through a work quake 67% more frequently, you know, than her boomer mother. So we have to grapple with this because it's becoming more the norm. But here's the signature piece of data. More than half of all work quakes, 55% begin outside of the workplace. So it's not that you don't like your job or your boss or the hours it's you don't like the commute, right? Or something happens with your family, okay? Or something happens between your ears, your mindset changes, or you have a medical problem. So th that means in the battle between work and life, in effect, life now dominates work. And I think we have women to thank for this, okay? Because when once women got into the workplace, we're, we're not prepared to make these sacrifices, okay? We want... Our families are important to us and our work is important to us. And in the old days, you just basically had to, you know, always vote in favor of the workplace. And you don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. That is a massive change that women single-handedly, and now that the workplace is essentially predominantly female, okay, and the majority of workers hired now are black and brown women, like so diverse women are even leading more change. Women have brought us to this place where I don't have to do it, just what you want, because here's where we are right now. The single biggest takeaway from this project is that fewer people are searching merely for work anymore. More people are searching for work with meaning. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So, 
get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. But how do we get the permission to start to think that way? What happened? Well, in fact, one of my favorite questions in, in this book that I ask people, which is who gave you permission to make the change? And so I think we should talk about that because I think the issue is, I think that people now know they want work that gives them meaning, that gives them purpose, okay, that brings them happiness, whatever is the metric that they want. But no one's ever told us how to do that. And also we've conflated the idea of work with the opposite of that, of self-discovery and joy. And I was always told, well, it's work. It's not fun. It's work, right? There's that ad on the TV you you see from time to time. There's a great line in Mad Men does this too. The woman comes to John Hamm and says, I want to feel good about my work. And he's like, the money is supposed to make you feel good, Right. right? That is how we grew up. And by the way, for some people, money can be meaning. Like I'm sending two kids to college. Trust me, you know, like I understand yeah. that there are times in your life that this is the most important thing. But the but the the great opportunity of the moment is you don't have to always make that choice. We know a lot of people who started out down a creative path, okay, because they wanted self-expression. And then maybe it didn't work out and they settled down and they had families and then they had to prioritize a certain kind of work. And then they become, as people in my cohort are about to become, empty nesters. And they say, okay, well, now I want to do work for myself. Is that we we adjust what I call the ABCs of meaning. We sort of shift them in our lives between ourselves, our family, our cause. And that's the great opportunity. And so I think that the thing I've tried to offer in the search is essentially a toolkit for answering the question, what brings you meaning today? Not two years ago or five years ago, because Mm -hmm. you know what I hear from women a lot? I set out to follow my parents' dream. Yeah, I, I wanted to do what I was expected to do back to that, you know, back to what I call the should train. They got on the should train because they thought I should be doing this, that this was an acceptable thing. And they get down the road and they realize, I don't want to chase someone else's dream. I want to chase my own dream. And so what I've offered in this book in what I call 21 questions to find work you love is the toolkit for deciding what gives you meaning. Because to me, the, the, I think the most I don't know moving thing I learned, I would say, and maybe even surprising thing, we've been telling a story in this country since Ben Franklin, right? It's all the success is all about up. Rags to riches, right? Up by the bootstraps. You mentioned that earlier, the straight line up, right? Bigger salary, higher floor, greater view. You know, that's how we've defined success. But if there's one thing I learned, it's that the people who are happiest in what they do, who find the most meaning, who feel most fulfilled on their own terms, they don't just climb, they dig. They do what I call personal archaeology, and they dig into themselves and they ask themselves these questions like, what did I learn from my parents about work? In fact, let me ask you. So, okay, so you tell me what were the upsides and downsides of work that you learned from your parents? I learned that it was, well, very different from lessons from my mother and father. Okay. So from my father, I learned that it was life or death you know, very stressful. I think he came from very little and he was holding on very tight to this idea of the American dream Mm -hmm. and success that it was, you know, out, out of his control. And then from my mother, I learned that it was abject freedom, 
Mm. enchantment, self-expression. Wow. So I think I take both of those paradigms yep. with me. Into my- yeah. So, look, so I asked this question of all my people and what, here's, what's interesting. I started Europe. You, you ask questions for a living now, right? Well, you know, you've, you've jumped over to our side here. What are the upsides you learned for, about work? 67%, two thirds of people was people learned hard work, right? Yeah. Work hard. Okay. And in a way that's not surprising, but and, and and when I started asking this, I wasn't actually, I, did, I wasn't loving that answer. And so then I asked the downsides and then it got really interesting, right? Yeah. So look at that, <laughs> right? Those are jumped bundle clothes. Number one, overwork, right? And number two, strain on the family, right? So my parents worked very hard, okay, but they were always working and it, and it, and it brought a strain on the family. And then the other one was unhappiness that people mm-hmm. learn. Okay, then look over here on the, the minor upsides you know, love what you do. That's what you said you learned from your mother. So what I'm hearing from you is, okay, you set out in your work journey and we know you've made, you know, lots of interesting non-traditional choices, even for somebody, you know, in, in the fields that you've been in. It, it, it matters to you that you work hard, but it also matters to you that you be true to yourself, right? Yeah. And that you yeah. listen to yourself, Okay, so when we start then answering the question that you asked, which is how do I give give myself permission, then we're beginning to see that you have both. Okay, and now we have the beginnings of your work story. Now let's go to the next question. Okay, the next question is, other than family, who were your role models as a child? And what did you admire about them? Other than family, who were your role models? I mean, I I would say the a lot of the artists that my parents were around, you know, the other adults in my life who also had this incredible freedom, which I think really defined, you know, because they were successful artists. So to be an artist that's successful is so wonderfully lucky. And it, mm-hmm. you know, not only do you have freedom in your soul, but you have freedom, you know, you can make choices to do what you want to do. And then I think some parents that I grew up with who showed me a different life of you know, different values and structures and, and that kind of thing. So I listen to what people say for a living. And so here's what stands out to me. Okay. The words you used were artist, freedom, and family. Okay. And so if you look back, and I would say, if we look back, you know, to some of the early choices, you were not necessarily going down a certain path of Hollywood blockbuster, et cetera, right? You were doing more artistic, you know, decisions made out of freedom. And then of course you had a family and then you began to say, okay, I'm just not going to take everything that comes along the way. So the, the reason I'm going through this is to show the power of these questions, right? Because what is the exercise we're doing? The exercise is I'm unhappy. I'm stuck. I'm frustrated. I want to do work that I love. You asked about the stakes earlier, and I and I didn't fully answer your question. What are the stakes? 70% of Americans are unhappy with what they do. 75% of Americans in a poll released just two weeks ago said they plan to look for new work in the next 12 months. That's wow. 100 million people who are going to sit down with someone they love tonight or tomorrow morning and say, I'm not happy. I want to do something that I love. How do I figure out what that is? A million people a week quit a job. 
not fired, not laid off, quit a job. That's 50 million people a year. That's a third of the workforce. Another third is saying, I don't want to go into the office five days a week, right? So there is an unprecedented period of flux all built around, I don't want to sell my soul to something I don't love anymore. I want to find work that I'm that I love. And so again, I call it 21 questions to find work you love. But they're broken down into the basic building blocks of storytelling, right? Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Because I think the biggest mistake that we make is that we put how too early, right? Mm-hmm. How do you find a job? Okay. You buff up your resume, right? You, you know, you you update your LinkedIn profile. You call your contacts near and far. And the reason that that's not necessarily a great strategy is because it will work. <laughs> you will get the job, but you'll be unhappy <laughs> because in two and a half years, you have to do the who, what, when, where, why before. And so what the, tell me what about your parents is we're beginning to learn what who's, <laughs> what, pe- okay. So if I were to say to you right now, who are the who's that are most important to you right now? Answer this question, fill in this blank. Gwyneth Paltrow, right now, you know, I want to be the type of person who blank. Who feels fulfilled. Okay. So now I know something about you. If you're struggling, right, or your spouse is struggling, or your child just graduated from college is struggling, or your neighbor, okay, you ask them a series of questions like, so what have I learned about you? You're not prepared to take a job. That would be 20 hours a day. You don't want a job, perhaps, that makes you, you know, commute an hour and a half every day into a city from where you're living. So we are beginning to learn this. And the the thing about the role model is the role model question is the first decision you make about where you inherit your parents, right? You don't pick your parents. You inherit the values that you get from them. Your role model is, in effect, the first decision that you make about work. Because you choose that role model and you choose what you admire about them. So if you want to know what you should be doing now, start by asking yourself what you wanted to be doing before you had all these layers of expectation and money and status and on top, you know, and what society wants from you and what gives you prestige. If you go back to your childhood self that will help you begin to grab. We all have these stories in our head. I mean, the way I think about it actually is that these stories in our head is like our scripture. Hmm. What is scripture? You know, it's like a story, a parable, a homily, like that's in our head. Society gives us a script, but we're writing a scripture and you want to turn away from society's script as much as possible and listen to your own scripture. What is the process to begin unpacking, like whether it's work that's making you unhappy or Mm. something else? I mean, you talked about being true to yourself as it pertains to work, but like, don't people project their unhappiness and unresolved stuff onto the work and workplace? There's one of the lies we haven't talked about, and I think that will help me answer this question. Because the first lie is that you have a career. We've established you don't. The second is that you have a path. But the third is that you have a job. And that turns out, I mean, you know, the again, I'm older than you are, but I think that we're close enough in age. Did you grow up with the book, What Do People Do All Day in the way that I did that no. Richard, Richard Scarry? So it's this Richard Scarry book. And there were all these animals. And that, the raccoon was a baker, right? And the squirrel, oh, yes, you know, was a, was a postman. Like they were all like <laughs> traditionally gendered and they were doing, they went to a job during the day and they went home at night. Like that was the fantasy that we all grew up with. And that's not the fantasy we live in anymore. So one of the more surprising things is that no one has a job anymore. Everybody has up to five jobs. So what right. are the five jobs? The first is a main job. 
And we think we know what that is, but frankly, fewer than half of us even have a main job anymore. In my study, it was it was 39%. The second is a care job, caring for children or aging parents. And, you know, trust me, in the last 10 years, I've, you know, as my father memorably said, my father who died a year and a half ago, he said, it's much easier to bring up children than it is to bring down parents. <laughs> I had both jobs. So two thirds of us have a care job. Right. Um, three quarters of us have a side job. And I feel like that gets a lot of attention in the media these days, which we do for love or money, like serving on the co-op board or like the church, the church committee, or, you know, running an Airbnb or, you know, DJing at weddings or whatever it might be. But there are two other jobs I had never heard about that I set out to name. And the first is what I call a hope job, right? Which is something that you're doing that you hope leads to something else, like writing a screenplay, right? Or selling jewelry on Etsy, right? Or, you know, selling pickles at the farmer's market. What's Some your Christian, hope job? Do you yeah, have I, I, My hope job is maybe writing a novel, you know, which is sort of not my day job. You would think it would be like, like that sort of a hope job. I just said with my kids going off to college, I literally just said to my wife, you know what I want to do? Like, I kind of am pickle crazy. Like I want to like, can you, you can do pickling right in the end of the summer. Like when the kids go off, like <laughs> I want to like, I want my homemade pickle. Maybe that's why I said pickles at the farmer's market. I want, I want like my perfect pickle recipe. Right. So I don't know if that will be my, maybe that will be my hope job is to, is to start, is to start pickling come the end of the summer. But here's the thing that I think resonates the most from this book, from early readers is that we all have these invisible time socks that burden us and that feel like a job. And I kept hearing about it so much. I gave it a name. It was really, I struggled with this. I call this a ghost job. 93% mm -hmm. of us have a ghost job and that's battling self-doubt. Okay. That's battling discrimination. That's battling, you know, mental health. You know, what came up a lot, like financial wellness, like my parents, I didn't learn from my parents, like how to manage money and how to save and how to invest. And so I've got to spend a lot of time. This takes up to 12 hours a week. These wow. are like these invisible time sucks and they haunt us. That's why I call them ghost jobs. And so, you know, on one way, if this, these five jobs may feel like a burden. And this gets to the question you asked me. I think that what we do is we sort of shift around where we take meaning. Like, so maybe we need our main job for money and benefits, but our side job we do for meaning and purpose. I mean, I'll just tell you one story. I, I interviewed this woman, her name is Kirsten Green. She grew up in Alabama. She wanted to be a doctor, switched to criminology and started teaching criminology at an HBCU in Tennessee. Okay. And so she's off on what she thinks is her path. The daughter of a family member of hers gets pregnant unexpectedly, and she's a very young teenager, and she decides to keep the daughter, the child, and she asks Kirsten if she will be in the delivery room with her. So Kirsten starts taking online classes, and she helps this relative deliver this child, and at the end, it's the beauty, it's the happiness, she says, I think you should do this for a living. And so she becomes a licensed doula wow. on the side. So her main job now is still teaching criminology, but she has a side job, which is to be a licensed doula in communities that don't often have access to this kind of home maternal care. And she has a hope job to open a birthing center on the side. 
And she said, you know, you know what they say, tell God your plans. <laughs> and she's like, you know, this is what happened to me and I didn't expect. Yeah, yeah. So the point is, if you are unhappy, maybe you want to change your main job, or maybe you want to start a side job, or maybe you want to start a hope job, because maybe you say, you know what, I just got a great job offer, Gwyneth, mm -hmm. but my kids on travel soccer this year, and I got to be the parent and I got to spend every other weekend in a hotel room in the town over. And so that's my primary job right now. And in the old days, if you were a mom, it was once you get off that escalator, we were all told you can't get back on. This is the great opportunity. It's not an escalator. When there's no path, you can get off the path and on the path. So I think the opportunity that we have is the thing that's non-negotiable is I won't work with meaning. <laughs> what is negotiable is how you allot that meeting and how it is that you say, this is what I want right now, and I'm going to go out and achieve it. And what about like the idea of creating meaning for yourself in a job that might not inherently mm. have meaning? Can we use those moments in our careers to find ways to create meaning? One of the fascinating things about this work I've been doing for six years, collecting all these stories, is that we don't actually really know what is a story. There's like not that much that the scholars agree on, okay? But we know that it's two things connected, okay? So a bloody snowball is not a story, okay? A crying boy with a blood on his nose is not a story. A bloody snowball and a crying boy, that's a story. Because what the story does is connect. I think we should pause for a second, because what is the difference between happiness and meaning? Happiness is present-oriented. Like, you're happy right now. It's kind of a fleeting emotion. But what happens when difficult things happen, happen to you? The difference between happiness and meaning is that meaning stitches together past, present, and future, okay? Because it says, I used to be this, and then I went through a difficult time, and now I am that, okay? So what we're talking, the essence of what we're doing is making a, a, a story. And so what, what happens, the answer to your question is, we have that power. I talked, you know, there, I told this great story in the book about a woman who cleans bedpans in a Detroit cancer ward in a hospital. Okay. And you ask her what she does. She says, I give people hope. <laughs> I clean up for them. I'm part of this hope ward, she calls it. So my father was in the real estate business. Okay. He would build houses and build apartment buildings. And it was a very difficult, you know, that's a very cyclical business. And there were times of stability and times of, of instability. I think that my ghost job as a creative person is, you know, it's all going to come crumbling down, right? This is what keeps me awake at night. This is what I call like doing math at night, which is like <laughs> sitting in my head, like, you know, kind of wondering every, everything I do, write and make television and give speeches or whatever. It's like, these are vast changing businesses. And I feel like it's going to go away at any second. And maybe that's because, you know, my father was in a cyclical business, but he also like, he did this and then he would lobby Congress and he was very active in local politics in South Georgia, where I grew up. And once I asked my dad, like, like, why can't you be like other dads? Like, why can't you just have a job? Like, what is it that you do? And 50 years later, I can remember his answer. He said, shelter. Yep. And shelter is one of the five most important things for a human being. And that's what I do. And the, I don't know, the shock of that answer, the beauty of that answer, that's a story. That's finding meaning 
that what I do, and he worked at a company called the Home Loan Company, and there was home, you know, in that first word is I help people find their home. So the thing about the story is, the story itself doesn't have meaning inherently. It is our job to give it the meaning. That's Mm -hmm. the thing. And so what I'm trying to do here is give you the tools to realize this is the story of what gives you meaning. I mean, I I sort of have a metric about questions. And my metric about questions is, I spend a lot of time thinking about them as you do. (laughs) There's only one metric that matters about a question, and that's the answer. (laughs) If it gets a good answer, it's a good question. And in 35 years of asking questions professionally, a question that I asked in this book got the best answers I've ever received. And right before I started working on the search, I read a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, and it's called Auntie Toothache. It's the last one he wrote after Thumbelina, the princess and the pea, you know, the little mermaid. This was the final fairy tale that Hans Christian Andersen wrote. And it's about a little boy and he's got a way with words. And yet he suffers a lot of toothaches. And his aunt says to him, you've got a way with words. You're going to be a great poet someday. And one night he's in a delirious toothachey dream. And he's visited by this older woman whom he calls Auntie Toothache. And Auntie Toothache says to him, every great poet has a great toothache. And this may be the wisest thing that I ever heard. And I asked everybody in these conversations, did you have a toothache as a child? like something that gnawed on you, like a a problem you wanted to solve or like a dilemma you wanted to resolve. And the answers were, I don't think I didn't cry on a single answer because it was, I wanted to escape, right? Or I wanted freedom or I needed money or I felt uncomfortable. And I tell this story in this book about Mary Robinson. I can almost choke up in telling it to you. She said, I had the perfect childhood, the perfect family until 11 when my dad got sick and he died. And that was at a time when you didn't tell children, you know, that a parent was sick because you didn't want to upset him. And I never mourned my father. And I turned to, you know, improper relationships, to substance. I was always fascinated, she said, by airport reunions and goodbyes because there was family love that I didn't see myself. So I became a stewardess. I flew around the world. I went to work for Prudential. I ran from my whole life. And then she's at church one day. She hears a sermon. She goes to her childhood bedroom. She has a fight with her mother. She goes upstairs and and sitting in her childhood bed, she realizes that she has been running her whole life from the fact that she didn't mourn the loss of her father. Mm-hmm. And she went to work at a company that helps children grieve. And she spent five years there. And then she went and she built her own that was regionally. And now she runs a national organization to f- help families grieve because she answered this question What was my toothache? And then back then, and how do I answer this question? My purpose right now is blank. And she said, my purpose is not to have the corporate job, okay? It's not. It's to help other families not experience what I experienced. She found her why, and it took her 30 years of running from it before she was able to find it. It's in us. 
I talked to the smartest guy in the history of career counseling. And he says, when I meet someone, I know the answer to what they should be doing in five minutes, but I never tell them because the purpose is not for me or him or me or you to tell people. It's for you to discover itself. You asked me that question about permission. And I said to people, how did you give yourself permission to make the change that you made? And what people often do is they go ask somebody else for permission. Mm. And I love this finding as much as anything in the search. Three quarters of people said that I asked, did you get a piece of advice was my question. Who did it come from and what did they say? For three quarters of the people, what did the advice that they received that changed their life say? Do what you already are thinking about doing. <laughs> the answer is already inside you. People don't want to kick in the butt or slap in the face. No, they want to pat on the back. So the only person who can give yourself permission is you. And if there's one thing that comes out of this book, I hope it's meeting a bunch of people who gave themselves permission, and that will encourage you to do the same. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Bruce Feiler. His book, The Search, is out now. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.